This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's go live to Ottawa now. My guest is Jagmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP. He's the MP for Burnaby South. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Jagmeet, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, it's my honor. Thank you for having me on. Okay, okay. let's talk about your idea for uh, dental coverage in Canada. How would this work? So it's an idea that we prop- we proposed first in the campaign a year ago. We proposed it again uh, last September, and now we're proposing it a third time with uh, Jack Harris, a member of Parliament, who's put it forward as a, as a motion, as a private member's motion. So the way it would work is we basically would put forward a federal uh, dental care coverage for everyone earning less than $90,000, and it would cover people, it would save families about $1,240 per year on average, and it would cover everybody that earns less than 90000 costing about $1.5 billion to put it forward. It would be a federal dental care program, and it would be the first step towards building what we want to see happen was eventually a universal dental care for everyone. Okay, so when you say $90,000 in income, would that be an individual income or is that a family income? That would be for uh, the individual, or sorry, that would be for a family's income. Right, family. uh, no, sorry, it would be for an individual in the individual income of 90000 So anyone who's earning 90000 or less individually would get coverage in this plan. Okay, and you're saying that they would save, when you say they'd save 1200 bucks, I mean, that's what they would have to pay otherwise for insurance coverage? Exactly. This would yeah. be what they would have spent otherwise in either paying it out of pocket or uh, these are people that don't have coverage, right? The people who are, it's uh, those are earning uh, 90000 and less who don't already have coverage. So those are folks who would have to pay out of pocket. That's what they would be saving on average given the cost of, of dental care. How much would the program cost overall? Uh, the overall cost, as costed by the uh, Independent Parliamentary Budget Office uh, in Ottawa here, they've costed it at $1.5 billion. Yeah, $1.5 billion, But that would just be to start, right? You'd look to expand it later. Exactly. That would be uh, yeah. over five years per year to provide the coverage for everyone under 90,000. And then our plan would be looking at that program and expanding it so that everyone was covered. Okay, speaking to federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh about uh, dental coverage in Canada, where would the money come from? Borrow it? Tax the rich? Where do you get the money for this? Well, first of all, anytime we spend money, it's a matter of choices. So governments always make choices where they spend money. They spend it on tax giveaways. They spend it on not collecting tax from the wealthiest companies. Uh, So come, come... Countries and, and governments always make decisions around where they spend their money. The choice is I, I choose people and I choose investing in people. And we're the only party talking about revenue as well. So you're absolutely right. We believe that in this pandemic and all the time, if you look at uh, there's so many countries or so many companies in our country that are making profit off of Canadians that pay no tax here. Amazon pays no tax in Canada. One of the wealthiest uh, companies in the world, Netflix, Google, Facebook, effectively pay zero tax, though they're making profits off us. France put an idea saying, you know what, because they're making these profits and they don't pay tax, they put in a tax on their revenue, which is actually even more effective than a corporate tax rate because it directly taxes revenue. We're open to that. We believe if you make money in this country, you should pay taxes here. And there's no reason why the wealthiest companies in the world are getting away with not paying their fair share. 
What about a wealth tax in Canada? Is that still on your mind? Like, would you tax people on their on their RSP savings or, or the equity in their homes or inheritance? Would you bring in an inheritance tax in Canada? Uh, what we propose is a wealth tax on fortunes of over $20 million. So if someone's got fortune of over $20 million, we'd ask for a, we, we propose a 1% tax. So absolutely taxing wealth and taxing the rich. Uh, these are uh, the, the wealthiest, the top, top of the 1%. Uh, wealthiest Canadians that that we are asking them to pay uh, their fair share, pay a little bit more. Okay, you mentioned that you've been proposing this dental care plan for some time, and so far in, in the past, we've seen the Trudeau government resist it. I thought it was interesting to hear the federal health minister Patty Hydu seem just seem more open to the idea this week. But your thoughts? Yeah, well, more than ever, we were looking at this pandemic and seeing that people are struggling. People lost their jobs. When they lost their jobs, they also lost their benefits. So people are hurting. And they need health care. And right now, when people lost their jobs and their benefits in this pandemic, even more Canadians are left without coverage. There are so many people that are going without the coverage they need. I remember speaking to people who uh, one woman covered her mouth the whole time. She couldn't uh, move her hand from her mouth because she was so embarrassed about her teeth, saying that I don't want a handout. I don't want charity. I just can't afford to fix my teeth. I'm working hard, but I can't apply for another job because I'm so embarrassed. I was so there's so many people that are suffering, and, and it's good to see that finally the Liberals are starting to see that this is, this is important, but they've rejected, they voted against our proposal, which could have brought it in as early as September when there was a, a tax change that we asked them to change it so that it helped the people who needed it most, right. and that tax change would have freed up uh, $1.5 billion to pay for this program. Okay, so but there's if, ways to make this happen. But if you're going to give health care to people who are making 90000 bucks a year, like $90,000 a year is a pretty healthy salary. Like, isn't someone making that kind of money, shouldn't they be able to afford their own dental care? Well, what we're saying is that that's the starting point. We want it to be universal. Like, our health care system is universal. We don't look at how much someone makes to go into the doctor. We're saying that for people who don't have coverage right now, uh, they go without dental care, and people who don't go with uh, who go without coverage, who are ninety thousand or less, uh, are, are people that uh, we can afford to cover, and they have a plan that would cover them. And uh, at the end of the day, a lot of people, even if they earn uh, you know sixty thousand, fifty thousand dollars a year, it is very costly for for uh, a mom that's uh, working to to pay for her kids. Uh, their dental care is very expensive. It's going to cost a lot, what? and they simply just won't do it if it costs so much. Right. What services would be covered under a plan like this? Would it just be like teeth cleaning and just filling cavities? Or would, would it also cover more expensive procedures like root canals or extractions or dental surgery or tooth replacement or orthodontics? Anyone who's had the, their kids get braces knows how expensive that can be. Would that be covered? The plan is to cover everything that would be, uh, which would be essential for your dental health. So if it's uh, strictly, um, strictly um, a cosmetic, then uh, there would be there would be uh, some limitations, but everything that's necessary for someone to have good, healthy teeth, uh, to be able to have a, a smile, so they can be in in social context, uh, things that that yeah. would just make sense that we cover. We can cover someone when they go into a hospital with a broken leg, but we can't fix uh, help someone who's got a problem with their teeth. They've got excruciating pain in their teeth, or they're missing teeth. And we know that for proper um, nutrition, if you don't have healthy teeth, you can't eat well. So these are important things. So we would tie it into it's the plan is to tie it into what's uh, what's healthy for people to support their health, and uh, it would be very broad coverage. Okay, we're looking. We're following it closely. Thanks for your time today. 
Of course, my pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Time for our great tax the rich debate now. Now, should Canada bring in major tax hikes on the wealthy? What about a wealth tax in Canada? I'll tell you what, this is an idea that is gaining steam here. Did you just hear the headlines in our newscast that we just finished there? A wealth tax uh, being implemented south of the border to us here in Washington State. You just heard my interview with federal NDP leader Jugmeet Singh calling for a wealth tax in Canada. Now have a listen to this. You're going to hear here a clip of Christian Freeland, of course Canada's finance minister. Now this was back before she became the finance minister giving a TED talk and she's talking here about her book, uh, The Rise of the Global Super Rich and the Fall of Everyone Else. Have a listen to what she says here. Christian Freeland. Here is the most important economic fact of our time. We are living in an age of surging income inequality, particularly between those at the very top and everyone else. This shift is the most striking in the U.S. and in the U.K., but it's a global phenomenon. It's happening in communist China, in formerly communist Russia. It's happening in India, in my own native Canada. Okay, what should be done about it? The income gap, that's been around for a long time, but there's Canada's finance minister there saying the gap is getting wider. How could the government respond to this? Tax the rich? Is that what's coming? What about a wealth tax in Canada? Is that possible? Let's talk about it now with our panel. Uh, Jim Stanford on the line. He's an economist at the Center for Future Work in Vancouver. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hiya, Jim. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Also on the line is Jasmine Moulton. From the, uh, she's the Ontario Director of the Taxpayers Federation. Jasmine, thank you for coming on today. Great to be here, Mike. Okay, Jasmine, when you hear all this talk about tax the rich and a wealth tax, what goes through your mind? What do you think? Well, essentially, at the end of the day, it's an emotional argument, not an empirical one. If you look at in Canada, for example, the top 1% of earners here pay more than 20% of income taxes in this country. And if you expand that to the top 10% of income earners in Canada, they pay 54% of income taxes. So I think that the finance minister really would need to answer the question, how much more uh, tax should they pay to make this uh, their own fair share? Okay, Jim Stanford, what do you say to that? Well, the reason they pay so much tax is because they make so much darn money, Mike. That's the point. So saying that they pay a lot of tax, in a way, reinforces the fact that the income distribution has shifted very much in favor of high-income people. And it's not just the income that's the, that's the issue here. Income inequality is bad. Wealth inequality is much, much worse. The wealth inequality measures how much you have, if you like, as opposed to how much you make in the course of a year. And that's where the gap between the top 1% of society and the rest of us has just become as yawning as the Grand Canyon. So what do you think the government should do about it, Jim? Well, there has been a lot of discussion about the wealth tax. Uh, this is where people who have a fortune above a certain size, say above $10 million or above $50 million, would have to pay a certain tax, perhaps a, a fraction of 1% of that, to the government uh, each year. Uh, that's what, uh, uh, as you discussed, has been proposed uh, in Washington State, uh, what uh, the NDP is proposing here. Another way to go at it, frankly, is to tax the income from wealth. We have a whole slate of tax loopholes for financial investors where they don't pay tax at the same rate that we do on our wage income. So things like partial inclusion of capital gains, all those fortunes that are made speculating on the stock market, uh, dividend tax credits, other loopholes that reduce the taxes for people who are wealthy. I think that would be another way to go uh, to close some of those loopholes. Jasmine, what do you think? 
<laughs> so, I mean, I have to just shake my head because at the Taxpayers Federation here, we just released a report on wealth taxes in Canada. So I'd encourage your listeners to check that out on our website, taxpayer.com. But essentially, the parliamentary budget officer in Canada had said that a wealth tax, there's a lot of uncertainty if it will work. But if it does, it might have brought in $5.6 billion this year. I'd remind all your listeners, Trudeau spends $1.8 billion a day. So a wealth tax essentially would cover his spending for about three days. Um, there are 41 billionaires in Canada. If you uh, confiscated a billion dollars from each of them, um, that wouldn't go very far toward paying off our $1 trillion debt. Uh, so it's just not a serious solution. In fact, I think it's more of a distraction. Um, you know, we really need to get this country's out-of-control spending uh, back under control. Uh, and that really is the serious issue here. But um, Jim says, so clearly a wealth tax would not do much, if at all, to um, improve the country's situation. As we've seen, many most European countries who had a wealth tax have abandoned it. Uh, France, for example, saw uh, over 42,000 millionaires leave the country uh, during the brief time that it had a wealth tax. So uh, really, as I've already pointed out, when the wealthy in this country already pay uh, more than half of the taxes in this, the income taxes in this country, do we really want them leaving? Okay, Jim, what about those, those millionaires? You want them leaving Canada? Well, the brain drain argument has been used for donkey's years, Mike, uh, to to try to discourage us from demanding anything from people who've done so well, and it it just doesn't wash. Uh, we haven't had a brain drain in Canada. We've had a brain gain. People, including wealthy people, love to come to Canada because of our social infrastructure. It isn't Pierre Trudeau, not Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau spending 1.8 billion a year. It's our elected federal government uh, spending that much, uh, uh, as Jasmine says. And there's a reason for it because we have better healthcare, education, cities, transportation, and a higher quality of life as a result. And that draws people to Canada. So this uh, old argument that if you do anything to try to make the rich pay a better share, they'll all leave is is uh, is nonsense and isn't backed up by the data. In fact, there's more evidence that inequality harms economic growth uh, for lots of reasons, one of them being a large share of the population doesn't have any money to spend, and that is holding back consumption and job creation and, and economic growth. I agree. There are design issues in how to do a wealth tax and how to do it right. Um, there's lots of serious study about it, including work from the Center for Policy Alternatives that I would also encourage listeners to check out. Uh, so there are challenges to be overcome, but that doesn't mean you throw up your hands and say, well, let the just Bezos of the world just collect their billions and and the rest of us will struggle to get by. You kind of anticipated my next line of question here and Jasmine for, for your thoughts Jim making the argument there about the brain drain or would there be a, a, an economic backlash if you brought in a big wealth tax or heavy heavy uh, top level income taxes what do you think about that I mean do you think there would be uh, ramifications for the economy if they brought in some big wealth taxes like this? Well, undoubtedly there would be, and that's why we've seen, as I said, the majority of European countries that have tried this wealth tax experiment before Canada have tried it and abandoned it because it simply does not work. Uh, there's an administrative problem uh, with it. For example, CRA already employs, the Canada Revenue Agency already employs 40,000 bureaucrats for the very simple task of just taking a portion of our income, and that's really, really straightforward math. And that costs taxpayers about $4.3 billion a year for CRA to do that. But in fact, now you'd be asking them to become uh, professional company uh, valuators. 
They'd have to assess how much wealth a company had. And all you have to do is watch Dragon's Den to figure out how complicated that is. No, this, is this is nonsense, Mike. That is an absolute red herring. The companies and the investors themselves have to evaluate their wealth when they file their tax returns. They do that already in terms of their uh, capital gains tax and other uh, financial gains that they have to report on their income. So this idea of an overwhelming bureaucracy sucking the blood out of the economy is, is uh, absolutely a, a false herring. If anything, our tax system has too many loopholes and not enough enforcement. There's all kinds okay. of evidence on the high-income people who are able to evade too much of their taxes. Okay, Jasmine, do you want to respond to that real quick, and then we'll take a break and some phone calls. Sure, I'd encourage him then to go uh, evaluate how much an entrepreneur who might be cash flow negative, how much is that company worth? The CRA would have no idea. These are bureaucrats. They're not professional business valuators. And I think that we could anticipate a lot of money in uh, legal uh, suits when the CRA starts pretending that businesses right. are worth a lot more than they are. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about a potential wealth tax in Canada. Is that what's coming at you this year? My guests are Jasmine Moulton and Jim Stanford. Your phone calls, we got lots of them, so let's go right to them. Ron in Abbotsford. Hey, Ron. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. I just want to say, uh, how come there's no news of, uh, you know, all that uh, wealthy money, all that money that's in all those tax havens not coming back? And what about uh, seizure of all the... Uh, the laundered money uh, from Paul Jin. You know, where does it, how come they haven't gone after that money? Well, you know, there's like $50 million in that okay. underground bank. Well, let me ask Jim Stanford about that, about offshore tax havens. Are there a lot of Canadians hiding their money out of the country, Jim? Do we know? Not a lot of Canadians, but a lot of rich Canadians, which means it yeah. adds up to a lot of money. And this is one of the examples that we are talking about before, about our current tax system having uh, too gentle of an approach to try and track down uh, this money. So we've seen from the Panama Papers and other exposés uh, some very wealthy Canadians keeping their money offshore to avoid the, the taxes. So, okay, maybe that's, maybe that's one where Jasmine might, ag- might agree with you. Jasmine, what do you think? Well, absolutely. If there are people, you know, evading their legally owed taxes, um, you know, that's, that's an issue. But yeah. I think, you know, uh, it is an issue when you also talk about increasing like we need to face the reason why these people are doing that in the first place i'm not defending them by any means um but uh punishing the wealthy more in this country certainly isn't going to leave more behind to pay more tax okay let's uh, keep taking your calls here 604-280-9898 is the number star 9898 on yourself frank in vancouver hi frank Hi, I completely disagree with Jim. I think it's an economy destroyer. For example, it, like the wealth tax. Let's just say my business, or I had ten million, uh, worth ten million. Why would I even be motivated to grow my business if I know uh, I'm going to get taxed heavily on it? Uh, they let you know people like Jim like to use Sweden as an example, but Sweden has all kinds of problems. Number one, they're one of the countries that has the slowest growth of new businesses in any industrialized country. I mean, uh, it's just ridiculous. Uh, you're going to see the wealth move, but you're not only see the wealth move, you're going to see people say, well, screw it. I'm not going to grow my business. I'm just going to keep it right there at that number where uh, I don't get taxed. Okay, Jim Stanford. Well, the proposal for wealth tax is at a very small proportion of the accumulated wealth, so it might be 1%. So the incentive is the 99% you get to keep, my friend. So uh, if, in fact, you've got that much money, go ahead, make a lot more, and you won't pay that much towards the society that helped make you rich. Jasmine? Well, I think that's false. On this phone call, Jim has already said that he's looking to tax income um, 
generated from wealth, which would be double taxation. So at the point, look, I ran no, my that's own not double taxation. That's sing- single taxation on dividends. You just pay the same rate as you and I do on our wages. Jim, let me tell you something. I ran my own company for years, and before I sold it and joined the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, not only did I pay income tax, uh, pay my employees, uh, help them to pay their income tax. Through no, jobs. the employees pay their income tax, not you. Yes, through jobs that I created for them. Oh, they, no, they uh, did the work I'm for you. I would say they are the ones who helped make you some money. Excuse me, can hang I on, finish on. my statement? Yeah, please? Jasmine, go ahead, I match, please. Their e- I match their EI, I match their CPP. And then when I go to buy an asset or invest my money, I'm then, again, paying capital gains tax on that. So it is double taxation. When I go to the pumps, I'm now not only paying uh, excise tax, I'm paying tax on tax on tax at the pumps. At what point do you just say, you know what, the government can't tax us to death. We need to start figuring out how this government can find savings. Okay, let's go back to phone calls here. Peter on the line in Surrey. Hey, Peter. Hey, Mike. Uh, The lady is absolutely right on this. You know, it's kind of arrogant to say, I'm a small business guy, too. I'm not a rich guy and everything. And they they pay so many taxes, and they pay indirect taxes. You're paying GST. They're buying things. They're investing. I pay, to to say the employees pay all the payroll taxes, it's fake. Because the boss pays 1.4 of the EI. He pays double the CPP, and he pays income tax. I'm a small business owner. I always pay $100,000 in payroll taxes a year with six guys. So to keep taxing the rich is wrong. The lady is right. The people are leaving in droves in Europe because of taxes. You have to have the rich people around to invest, Mm. to employ people, and have all this stuff. That is more important. When they leave, everybody goes down. That's what turns into poor countries. You need the rich people. You need them around because they they grow everything. They invest, and they spend, and they employ. Okay, Jim. Taxing and taxing is bullshit. Okay, Jim Stanford, go ahead. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. Well, first of all, if you're not rich, as you claim you're not, you're not going to pay the wealth tax. All of these wealth taxes come in at a threshold where you're obviously very rich, 10 million or 50 million. That's rich by anyone's books. Secondly, people aren't leaving Canada in droves. They're trying to come to Canada in droves. Why? Because we've got good health care, good education, and a society that works. Why do we have those things? Because we pay taxes and put them towards those services. So this is, okay. a, this is an economic boost, not a, not a drain. Squeeze another call in here. Shelley in South Surrey. Hi, Shelley. Hi there. Well, Jim, Jim just kind of stole my thunder there, and good on you, Jim. We in Canada, the reason people want to come to Canada is because of the fact that we have um, reasonable but actually quite horrible social services when you compare us to um, countries in Europe. Um, Canadians like to compare us to how we're better than the states. Well, the states is is on the ground in terms of the bar. We need to actually be thinking bigger and we need to be thinking about what we can do. So if these investors don't want to be here, they can go to countries that have worse police services. Although, how, how can we do that? Because they're not doing anything about money laundering here. Okay, okay, um, Shelley, th- thank you for the call. Just running out of time. So let me go to Jasmine and get her response on that. Jasmine, we just got like a, a minute and a half left here. All right. So when people say that we need the government to reduce income inequality, what they're saying is that we need a bigger government. We need uh, with 
more taxation power. So let's look at how this government spent our taxes recently. They just gave $150 million to SNC-Lavalin, uh, despite uh, fraud allegations. They just gave Bell Canada $122 million, um, even though they just increased their dividends and uh, laid off a bunch of people in Toronto. What about that small uh, grocery store owner who uh, paid her taxes, and this government turned around and gave them to Loblaws, her biggest competitor, uh, to buy more energy-efficient freezers? Um, at the end of the day, a market economy is the best poverty reduction program we've ever known. It's a logical error to equate inequality with poverty. And... Right. Uh, Okay, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, yeah. Jasmine, I, we're, we're out of time. I hate to step on you there, but uh, we're up against the clock. I want to thank both of you for an excellent discussion, and we could have kept going here for another hour. We got so many calls. So we'll just have to do it again. We'll have you. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Both back. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about lowering the speed limit on municipal side streets now. Take a look at what's going on in the city of Calgary next door in Alberta. They have voted to go ahead with dropping the speed limit on residential streets from the current 50 kilometers an hour to 40 clicks an hour. So dropping the speed limit by 10 kilometers an hour, 40 kilometers an hour would be the maximum speed on residential side streets in the city of Calgary. Have a listen to this report here now from Global News reporter Adam Vicker. A spring slowdown coming to Calgary neighborhoods something this Calgary mom has been calling for. The science says that it is best practice to reduce speed limits to help prevent injury and death. Um, So it seems like a no-brainer to me. An average of 9,100 crashes happen in Calgary neighbourhoods every year and 550 of those result in injury or worse. The driving force behind a city council decision on Monday to reduce the default speed limit on residential streets from 50 to 40 starting May 31st. So if you don't see a sign on a road, that means that the speed limit is 40 kilometres an hour. Okay, that report from Global News, you heard the final voice you heard there was Nahid Nenshi from the mayor of Calgary. You also heard from Calgary mom Lindsay Bleak, who likes this idea, dropping the speed limit to 40 kilometers an hour on side streets. This is an idea that's been picked up by a lot of municipalities, including in British Columbia. There's a lot of talk about it. Victoria, Vancouver, all toying with this idea. Go to a 40 kilometer hour per hour speed limit on side streets. Is this the way to go? Is this what we should do? Let's talk about it now with my guest, Derek Lures. He is a researcher with the speed limit group Sense BC. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Derek. Good morning, Mike. Okay, interesting. I'm, I hope you're doing well, too, and thanks for coming on. It's interesting to see what Calgary's doing. Your thoughts, what, what do you think about what's going on in the city of Calgary here? Well, I, I think it's part of a, a trend of the ideologues for the Vision Zero movement, who, uh, whose ultimate goal is to have zero fatalities on our roadways. And although it's a, uh, a very what's wrong, nice What's idea, wrong with that? Well, it, it's, a, it's an impossibility. As long as we have inertia and, um, <laughs> and products of steel rolling down the road, it, it's an impossible goal. It sounds nice on paper, and it's a great idea, but it's just not practical in the sense that it's just never going to happen. 
Okay, does a 40 kilometer uh, an hour speed limit on side streets, residential streets, make sense to you as a researcher? Uh, well, no, I don't, the data doesn't prove out that it's necessary. I mean, the report from Calgary's uh, council that went to council on this decision showed that the average speed on these residential streets already is 36 kilometers an hour. So not oh. quite sure other than some political grandstanding what it is that they're trying to achieve here. Uh, you know, I've, I've driven, your streets over on the mainland are tend to be a little bit more congested than uh, over here in the west coast of the island, but having driven over there, you know, it's impossible or nearly impossible to do anything in the 40-kilometer range anyways because there's so many cars on the side of the roads and the streets are so narrow. Yeah, no, it is interesting to take a drill down on some of the data that was that you've taken a look at in the city of Calgary. So you're saying that on these Calgary side streets and residential streets where they've just reduced the speed limit to 40 kilometers an hour, that on average drivers were already driving under that speed? Yeah, that's, that's correct. The average speed on those residential streets uh, was 36 kilometers an hour, according to a segment of study that was presented to Calgary City Council. Yeah. Okay. Now that's an average though, right? I mean, it's always possible that you have some problem streets, right? There's always streets in any city that drivers will use as a shortcut or whatever, and you'll see people speeding down certain streets. Like not every street has got a speeding problem, but some some do. Would you agree? Uh, sure, but you've got to identify. So there's a couple of things. You've got engineering solutions. So if the roads are designed to go faster, then people are naturally going to go faster. That's just, yeah, that's even in the traffic engineering handbooks for street design. So if the streets are designed and have the perception for the driver of being safer at a faster speed, then they're going to go that speed. But these, if you look at the maps for Calgary, these are actually small residential streets. These are not the collector roads that take you into the subdivisions. These are the small subdivision roads themselves. Okay, it's interesting to see what Calgary is doing, and I think it's kind of instructive because we have municipalities in British Columbia that are looking at doing the same thing. Like when you take a look at this idea, the, the idea of dropping down to a 40 kilometer an hour speed limit, I mean, is there any is there any downside to it, Derek? I mean, I take your point that a lot of people are already driving slower than that anyway, so what's the point? But would there be any downside to dropping the speed limit anyway? Well, I think the down, there's a few downsides. You're going to have the downside of you know emergency response. You're going to have the imp- impact of increased travel times transportation times, all businesses, everything we do in our economy, uh, no matter where you are, is based on the selling of our time. Um, so those delivery trucks, those Amazon drivers, you know, you going to work, the guy trying to get to his job at the office downtown, they're all time-based. And, you know, this is, this is going to cost, you know, the city of Calgary, it's going to cost them a few million dollars to implement this. Um, but they, what they don't want to do is spend the uh, estimated, according to their data, $500 million to do the traffic calming improvements that are required to actually get the change to happen. So the, the people are going to keep driving the speeds that they're going to do because, as you heard in that newscast, these are not posted signs. They've now changed the default to 40 kilometers an hour. So you've right. got to presume yeah. that it's all 40. The Calgary Police Service, in their report to council, actually didn't support this move. They said doing this move without uh, putting in traffic calming measures is not going to be effective. They wanted uh, the, actually the province of Alberta to make the changes and not just bylaws in the city. So um, okay. I don't know what it's achieving. It's not, it's not going to help anything. And, and in that report that you cited there that the reporter covered, he, he top-lined it, but he didn't actually dial down into the data. There was 36,000 crashes in Calgary per year on average. 
But when you break down their report, six people per year are that were walking and cycling were involved in crashes in Calgary. Not not the 500 that uh, was kind of top-lined in that newscast. Okay. Every time I hear um, politicians or governments talking about speed limit changes, I, I always think about the money aspect of it, and is this just a cash grab? I mean, we've seen in our own province how uh, government has expanded red light cameras, now speed cameras at intersections. We talked about this on the show last week with people getting speeding tickets going through speed cameras. Like, how much do you think is this uh, of this kind of stuff is, like, revenue-driven, that it's a money-maker uh, well, and we all know that governments are addicted to cash, and uh, this is a great step to get them into that direction because as the report states that if the roads are designed uh, to a speed which people are going to naturally drive faster, then compliance is going to be very difficult. Uh, so will they get attached as red light cameras coming next, uh, or sorry, speed cameras coming next? Quite possibly. Uh, Calgary has said this is just the first step. Their ultimate goal is to get that speed limit down to 30 so there, it's like a frog in boiling water. They're just trying to get the people used to this in a, a slow process. And if it's down to 30 and people are doing 36 or potentially 40, um, you know, then you've got automatic revenue streams. Derek, it's always great to have you on. Thank you for coming on with your thoughts today. Cheers, Mike. Have a great day. All right, welcome back to the show. We're talking about municipal speed limits. So should we drop them down to 40 uh, kilometers an hour on residential streets in British Columbia? 604-280-9898 is the number to call me. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go right to your calls. Mac in White Rock. Hiya, Mac. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. What do you think? Uh, yeah, excellent subject. I think it's definitely something that needs to happen. Um, however... Um, just really briefly, the problem with having limits set in place is it doesn't necessarily cause or it doesn't necessarily stop the problem, in my view. I mean, just an example where I live, there's this one stretch of street that I'm on, and it's probably only about maybe 400 feet long. But people just hammer the gas from stop sign to stop sign. And what I think would, would curb speeding is those big, giant speed bumps. I see them in other municipalities and yeah. other areas and other parts of Surrey as well. You want to have something that's going to destroy a guy's shopping cart of a vehicle that's going Mach 1 down the street. That's going to stop people from speeding. A lot of people snub their noses at the speed limits anyhow. It's definitely something to do. Um, legislatively, it probably wouldn't require a ton of cost behind it. Speed bumps would be more costly, but that's where I think yeah. people in communities have to rally behind it. But They're effective. Yes. They're effective. Thank you for that call. They are effective. There are traffic calming measures that can be very effective. Speed bumps are, are one of them. On-street parking is another one. That could stop people to slow down real quick. But like you said, it can be expensive uh, to put in a lot of them. Let's go to Ross on the line in Surrey. Hey, Ross, what do you think? Hey, Mike. Yeah, I yeah. agree with your last caller there. The traffic calming uh, speed bumps would be a big help. Yeah. Um, yeah, parked cars are a bit of a deterrent for people to speed, but in my neighborhood, that not all the time, but it doesn't always stop them from doing the 50 that they're allowed to do. So why not knock it? You know, 30K to me is a little bit better. It Hasn't it been proven that the slower you go, the less likely if you hit somebody, it, you know, that it's going to kill them? Do you think it would work, though? Like if they dropped it down to 40 or 30 clicks an hour, would it work on your street? Do you think people would slow down? Uh, well, we don't get too many people speeding along. But, yeah. you know, the reason people don't speed in neighborhoods is because they have a conscience and they don't want to hit that kid that darts out from in between a car or something. Yeah. The problem is when some of these streets are used as a shortcut. Uh, you know, in my neighborhood, I know there's some popular streets that are used as shortcuts and people, there have been speeding problems in some of those streets, but they have brought in 
those traffic calming measures that an earlier caller referred to, speed bumps and other measures that can really slow people down. Keep phoning me on it, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Jennifer in Vancouver, hi. Hi. Hi there. Um, so I, I agree with reducing the speed limit to 40 k's an hour, but here's an issue that I have with those speed bumps is where I live, they put them on not my street, but streets close to me. They've also put a 30-kilometer speed limit on another street, and so I'm seeing traffic diverting away from those speed bumps and the roads with the 30k speed limit onto my street now. So... You know, I think if you have a limit all around, then it yeah. would prevent cars from trying to avoid those other types of measures. Yeah, you'd have to have some sort of consistency. Thanks for the call. Like right now, there there's provincial legislation in place, the Motor Vehicle Act, that would have to be changed to make this a, a blanket rule ac- across the province. Like right now, you've got individual municipalities, some of them trying out pilot projects to see how this would work. Uh, right now, I think you'd need the province to step in to make it consistent across uh, BC. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Guy in Surrey. Hi. Hi there. Um, Hi. All my thunder's been stolen. I think it should be uh-huh. speed bumps. I mean, I've got people down our street coming a hundred, over a hundred, and it's ridiculous. They're going to kill someone. It's it's insane. I don't know how to stop it. I mean, I stand in the front yard with a rock in my hand, ready to throw. It's just, I don't know what else to do. You can't even read their license plate number. They're going by so fast. Well, and this is like on a residential side this street? This is a residential side street. It's just, wow. there's nothing, and there's cars even parked on the street. It's crazy. Huh. Have you ever complained? You know, yeah, you ever... I complained. I tried to see about getting uh, speed bumps, but you, they won't put them in. They say it's too much money and stuff. Interesting, Guy. Thank you for that. This guy in Surrey. Let's go to another caller in Surrey. Roger. Hi, Roger. What do you think? Hey, Mike. I live in Hi. Surrey, and I drive to the Fraser Valley every day. I probably put on you know 30,000 kilometers a, a year driving, and, I, and I've gotten you know the occasional speeding ticket, but I totally agree. I, I think what there needs to be is there needs to be the advent of technology, like Police shouldn't be pulling pe- people over. There should just be drones that are just catching speeders. I mean, oh. that's the best way to control speeders <laughs> is to have, you know, a system in place where anybody that's speeding could get a ticket. And, you know, for every ticket I've gotten, I've totally deserved it. And I think everybody oh. should just be aware of the speed limit and try to stay within it. Okay, Roger, thanks a lot for that. Uh, drones using to catch speeders? Wow, that's an interesting idea. Uh, maybe that's coming at you next. Shane in Surrey. Hey, Shane. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm good. What do you think? Um, I was resident of Surrey, and I petitioned the city for traffic calming. And what you got to do is fill out a form and get neighborhood consensus. So you need all their signatures agreeing that they want traffic calming. So I got that. And then what they, the city does is they put out the, uh, you know, those hoses across the road that uh, detect the speed of vehicles. Yeah. So they, so they put those out, and so then that measures the speed of the traffic going uh, up and down the road. Well, all the car we were watching, and all the cars, of course, slow down for these rubber hoses, and, of course, they're doing the speed limit. So they came back to me with the information and said, well, no, there's no speeding issues in this neighborhood. Oh. So we, couldn't, we didn't get it. But, I mean, that, that's what you have to do, uh, at least in the city of Surrey, is you just petition traffic at surrey.ca, I believe, and 
they'll uh, go to at least do a study. But unfortunately, uh, it hasn't happened in the neighborhood, and the traffic, the speeding is unbelievable because it's a slight hill, and people, same thing, they just gun it out of the neighborhood. Okay, Shane, thank you for that. It's an interesting, yep. uh, interesting story. I appreciate your time. Uh, Carol on the line, also in Surrey. Hey, Carol. Hi. Oh, you um, got a minute. Yeah, okay. No, Mike, we have uh, we have those speed bumps coming up. I'm in Surrey, Cloverdale area. And, I mean, they're okay. You know, I have no problem with the first initial ones that did. But then all of a sudden they get them to so high where you're coming down and almost stop to cross them. Oh, yeah. Otherwise you're bottoming, bottoming out. So I like the calming circles better, like the traffic circles, mm. because you can't get going much faster than that. We have... We don't have much parking right in front of our house, but past our house, there's lots of parking, like all the basement suites, and um, they just seem to gun it, um, you know, and it's the people here. So that gentleman who said, you know, get your neighbors to petition, the ones that live right here that have the issue in front of their house would certainly sign it, but it's all the other ones that are, you know, it's the people in your neighborhood that are speeding. Right. Carol, thanks. thank you very much for the call. Appreciate all the calls on that one. If you didn't get through, phone the buzz line. Leave me a voicemail there, 604-331-BUZZ. All right, welcome back. Here we go now with the UBC Law School snitch list. Now, law school students ratting each other out here for breaking COVID rules. We talked about this on yesterday's show. This is getting pretty intense at the UBC Law School. Here's what's going on. Some students at the school started a list of other students who were breaking COVID rules. They were going through their social media posts so if you had students who were getting together to party, maybe a road trip to go skiing, you posted some pictures on your social media, watch out. You could end up on this snitch list. Now, the law school said the list was being prepared for law firms looking to hire some of these students for internship positions. Wow, there is fierce competition for these jobs. Some students turning on each other in the battle for these internships. The law school officials not happy with this situation. They told students stop snitching on each other. Students have been told to delete and destroy this list. Now, we talked about this on the show yesterday. This show was broken by the student newspaper, the UBC. And I spoke to Andrew Ha on the show yesterday. He's an editor there. And I asked him about the response this story has gotten from the public. Here's what he said. People just joking about, you know, law students being snitches or being petty for compiling this information. Um, you have some other people who are focusing on the potential violations of health orders, questioning, you know, whether students are breaking the rules, um, the fact that they shouldn't be breaking the rules at all. Um, and then you have a lot of other people who are talking about personal privacy as well. Um, yeah. The concerns about the fact that, you know, students are apparently stalking each other's social media profiles to dig up dirt to share with potential employers. So, there, there's a bit of a mixed response here. Okay, that's Andrew Hahn, yesterday's show from the UBC, the student newspaper there at UBC. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Ari Goldkind. He's a criminal lawyer, political commentator, and legal expert. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ari, thanks a lot for coming on. Great to be on with you, Mike. Okay, Ari, it's great to get a, a lawyer's perspective on this one. Uh, what do you think about what's going on here at the UBC Law School with this snitch list? I'll tell you, Mike, you know, I usually can see both sides of a story. You know, I tend to take a more even-hand approach or play devil's advocate. My feelings on this are very clear-cut. The snitchers, and, you know, I'm in a business where it's very hard for police to get people to inform and solve crime. So believe me, I'm not anti-snitching or I don't like the word rat, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But the fact that these people who ran this snitch uh, website or whatever list we're calling it, yeah. are going to ultimately end up with the same degree that I worked for years to have, 
causes me great embarrassment. I think these people are embarrassments to the profession. It would be one thing, and here's where the nuance comes in, Mike. It would be one thing if law firms on their own scoured applicants' social media, Instagram, Facebook, not necessarily for COVID violations, but to see what kind of people they're dealing with, particularly given that in this day and age, and I'm 47, so I don't think like an 18 or 20-year-old, everybody posts what they had for breakfast and takes a picture of their dinner plate, which is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. So if you're out violating rules and you're posting it or you're hosting the nightclub party like that idiot in Vancouver who, you know, was charged the other day for the penthouse parties, it's one thing for an employer to go looking, and that raises privacy issues, but that's not the point. But for these law students to be doing it and then sending these this list to potential employers, to me, it is one of the nastiest, most almost silly, sort of immoral, unethical things I can think of. And some people will say, well, you know, they were skiing and they took pictures skiing and, you know, you're not supposed to go to Whistler now. That's fine and good. But to be sending that to potential employers to get a a leg up, you know, these are the very same people that once they get to be lawyers and, you know, making money, they'll be the ones on Twitter tweeting about how civil liberties are being violated and police shouldn't do this and police shouldn't do that. And government, I, I think the whole thing stinks. And to me, Mike, they can't do it because we don't know who the people are, and I'm sure they'll play some kind of card that gives them immunity. The law school should kick these people right out. Well, okay, so you think that these snitchers, whoever was compiling this list at the UBC Law School, they should not allowed to be lawyers? They should be kicked out of law school? No, I mean, I'm being somewhat hyperbolic about it, but, you know, okay. I, I'm somebody who thinks, you know, this is still a profession that has some esteem, some respect of the public something special about being a lawyer. I realize it's being watered down the more law schools that are created. The fact that, you know, we just pour people into law schools without wondering, is there a market for their services and all the lawyer jokes that, you know, you and I can make up now, but the same as the medical profession or the psychiatric profession or any blue collar profession. I think whoever regulates those bodies should look at the character should look at the decisions of those people and somebody who literally goes into somebody's Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. As much as you know, Mike, I call it anti-social media. I hate it all. I think Twitter is the scourge of our world. I think Kim Kardashian and Instagram is the scourge of our world. But for your fellow student to be doing that, taking screen grabs, and it's one thing to send a message to you, your fellow student, say, hey, you're an idiot. You shouldn't have been in St. Bart's over Christmas versus sending it to an employer to make them look worse and you right. look better. Yeah. That's the kind of person, Mike, whose character I'd be very, very suspect of. But I guarantee you, when this call comes out in the wash, it's the snitchers who will play some card. They'll talk about privilege. They'll play some identity card. I don't know who they are. I don't know anything about them. But I guarantee you, it's sort of like, do you remember, Mike, and you know, you and I are... 18 years old anymore. Remember Goodwill Hunting, that fantastic movie? Sure. Yeah. So do you remember when they go to the bar at Harvard and Matt Damon and Ben Affleck get into it with the guy with the ponytail, that stuck-up, snooty law student, and Matt Damon goes, how mm. do you like them apples, and essentially punches him in the face? Mm-hmm. That, to me, is the kind of odious person 
that kind of stuck-up person in goodwill hunting who, to me, is an affront to so much of this. It's a story that when I saw it, I was like, this almost seems like a joke. Who cares about this story? It's, like, funny. But then I thought, what kind of person does this, and then does this person then get rewarded by a law school with a law degree and then called to the bar? That's the problem. Okay, the administrators at the UBC Law School would, I think, agree with a lot of what you're saying because they have put their they've put the hammer down on this. They've ordered students to delete, desist, and destroy this this document, this snitch list that was being compiled. They warn students that doing this, uh, collecting and sharing your peers' personal information, they said in this letter, without their permission, crosses ethical and professional boundaries possibly uh, goes goes against the code of conduct at UBC for students at UBC. So they would agree with a lot of what you're saying. But let me put this to you. Sure. The, the people who were compiling this snitch list were, were told were just sim- simply looking at the social media posts that were put up by their fellow students who were break, breaking COVID rules. Do you not have to, in this day and age, you got to live with what you post on social media? It doesn't go away. Like you, me- so, you mentioned that a potential yeah. employer... Might, might take a look at their social media posts. That might be one of the first things you do before you hire someone these days. So don't you got to you make your own bed when you post this stuff on social media? So, so you raise a good point. This is why I wanted to be very clear in my answer. I'm not suggesting for in a second an employer shouldn't do it. I'm not yeah. suggesting there shouldn't be some, you know, response to, no offense, idiot students, and I'm making this up, Mike, posting from St. Bart's that they're breaking stay-at-home orders. For example, depending on your province, if it's in Quebec, if it's somebody partying post-curfew, you know, this is the idiocy of social media. And do I think people should pay some kind of price for posting like idiots? Sure. Look at when it, look at the finance minister in Ontario who's taking pictures, fake pictures by his fireplace yeah. on Christmas Eve <laughs> yeah. while he's in St. Bart's on the beach. Sure, there should be punishment. The, que- the very narrow question here, Mike, very narrow, is are these the kind of people that should be called to the bar? Mm. Is what they're doing ethical as law students? And to me, that kind of mindset, that kind of slippery person, and remember, Mike, this story isn't over. I guarantee you that if UBC disciplines these law students, which they will not do, You and I will be talking a month from now when they're playing some card, some identity card, some disadvantage card, some, uh, you know, I was dropped on my head as a child card. And to me, Mike, again, to be a lawyer in any province in this country should be somebody who thinks soberly, thinks slowly, decides what to do, doesn't act impetuously. And when you say I'm going to rat on my fellow student to potential employers... Yeah. That, to me, suggests something wrong with your character, not just theirs. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about that snitch list over at the UBC Law School, law students turning on each other here in the battle for internships, some of them uh, ratting each other out for breaking COVID rules. My guest is Ari Goldkind. Let's go to some phone calls here. Brad on the line and Duncan. Hey, Brad. Hey, Mike. I, I can't say I'm in total agreement with your guest there. I, I'm just wondering what the threshold of... of uh, 
of impropriety would be appropriate for somebody to snitch. I I have a discomfort with the snitching as well, but but rather than the focus being on them, I I do think that the focus is on the students that can't seem to follow the rules. And and the fact that that these are the folks that... uh, that can't seem to o- obey simple uh, common sense practices. Uh, maybe, maybe they're the ones when he speaks about those that are going to approach the bar are the ones that we need to be concerned about. And projecting, uh. projecting who these people are in the future, as far as what uh, I dropped on my head was dropped on my head syndrome, they might claim in the future. I don't think that we can uh, generalize either group in, in that statement. I think those statements were rather ridiculous. Okay, Brad, thanks for the call. Well, Ari, you know, at the end of the day, we're in a glo- global pandemic. We're in a public health emergency. Uh, it is. A, I guess you could argue it's a matter of life and death, right? When people are breaking the rules. So does that make it, you know, does that does that enter into the equation in your mind? No. Let me directly respond to two points sure. the caller makes. What one was quite good, and the other one was, I think, quite frankly, not good. So let me go to the one that was good. Okay. He said at the end of the day, look, these people are breaking the rules, and they should be in as much trouble as perhaps the people snitching. That is a completely valid view. I don't share that view. I'm somebody who takes a look at a poll yesterday, Mike. You might have seen it. That Canadians were polled about just how comfortable they are with the amount of snitching from neighbor to neighbor now. Your neighbor calling the cops or calling uh, the city bylaw because, you know, your neighbor's having dinner with their family and there's one extra person there. My full bias, Mike, and I put my bias out there, is that I think this is a very negative, very dangerous thing. These same people that are getting their, uh, clutching their pearls about their neighbor having a Christmas dinner don't seem to ever want to get as worked up about crime or certain things happening in their community because they're much more hot-button issues and dicier than calling and saying somebody is skiing. So uh, uh, your caller is completely fine to have that viewpoint that COVID violators or covid are right. the equivalent of criminals in Paul Bernardo. I don't share that view. To his point that when we find out who did this and if there's any consequences coming to them, that they will play some card, and to use my phrase, they will say they were dropped on their head as a child. I was being somewhat hyperbolic that they will play some card of disadvantage or privilege or something. This is the world we live in, Mike, where we don't just look at what somebody did. We have to look at well, through the lens of 17 excuses, and that's something that I'm uncomfortable with. Okay. I don't think it's going to get to that point. We'll see if it does. These students have already been told to cease and desist and destroy that list, and we'll see if that happens. Let's go to Aaron on the line in Surrey. Hey, Aaron. Hi. Um, just, I guess, to follow up sort of on that point that the previous caller made, I think that uh, you know the ratting out possibly, I, I believe, still should have happened possibly to the faculty instead of, uh, you know, potential sort of employers. But I, I do believe that, that uh, you know, as future lawyers and people that are students of law should follow the rules of law, you know, and, and health orders and, and, you know, health regulations. And the fact that they are not uh, sort of, I think, more shows to the, uh, you know, their sort of... Uh, beings as well as, as to who they are as people um and and would i want that person as a lawyer possibly not um especially if, they, if they're not following in and, and we've been in this pandemic for for well over a year now and and these are the reasons why why it's continuing is people are not following that okay and that okay. affects myself and everyone else let me get Ari's response on that. Ari, we got about a minute left here. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't think I need a minute. I think your caller is dead on, and I think he and I actually agree. That's why my point was very nuanced, that I would have no issue 
with these students saying something to the faculty or saying something to their administrator. I would have no issue with the employer. And many employers do do this across the country, Mike, looking at somebody's public social media account. And well, that's an, an interesting, employer, that's an interesting point because we don't know if these, maybe these are students ratting on other students. So some students may have had access to social media content if they're going to school. Maybe they're friends. Maybe they're ratting out on each and, other's friends. And they may be into private parts of their social media Exa- Exactly. you know, some things can be locked. But your caller, right. Bob, I want to respect your caller. I absolutely have no issue with the caller's point. My point was only on students sending this information to potential employers right. so that those students get a leg up over the other people. It's not necessarily that I'm saying somebody in St. Bart's violating a, a stay-at-home order is the kind of person we should look highly at. I okay. think your caller and I agree on that. Ari, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike.